We do everything from podcasting to YouTube, and it's all about permaculture education. Oh, man, you don't know what you, you opened a can of worms right there. Because <laughs> it's, it's basically Bruce Lee's Tao of Jeet Kune Do, which is essentially the martial arts ver version of permaculture. Hello, and welcome to the Permaculture Vine podcast. Today, I have Billy Bond on the show. Welcome. Hey, great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for being to come on. Uh, do you want to just give you a quick introduction, please? A short one, and then we'll get on to the questions afterwards. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm Billy Bond. Uh, we run Permapastures Farm. Uh, we do everything from podcasting to YouTube, and it's all about permaculture education. The uh, YouTube channel and um, the other visual media is basically for instruction. And then the rest of it, we get into conversations about deeper things. Some of it could even delve. I mean, it has delved into the political, sometimes the parapolitical, sometimes the paranormal. So um, we basically cover it all on the podcast. But on YouTube, we keep it. We try to keep it within a very narrow band of how to. We got record numbers of people getting into this permaculture, preparedness, and practical living space. And um, we're doing the best we can to try to educate as many people, having been at this for a very long time. Um, yeah, that's really the motive there. So, um, yeah, we're all about evangelizing this magnificent design science called permaculture to as many people as possible. And once again, it is a joy to be on here with you. Thanks very much. Uh, I love the podcast. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, do you want to take us back right to the start and how, how you get into permaculture? I, I believe you've been uh, doing this for a while. Yeah, for me, um, it all, well, my wife had been into it long before I was. I'm a journeyman electrician. I'm also a former talk show host. So I was doing that part time on terrestrial radio. And I was also working my day job as an electrician. And my wife for years and years and years was trying to get me on board to the whole farming thing. She was trying to turn me on to Joel Salatin and Greg Judy and all these other people that were doing magnificent things in this space. And it wasn't until I heard Joel Salatin in an interview and hearing him speak, and now he spoke very differently at that time. And when I heard of it, when I heard his political messaging, I was like, oh my goodness, this guy's a farmer and he does all this stuff. And He's still very much, a, um, you know, his political stance is what really drove me to it. But I kind of put it on the shelf and I really didn't get into it more than just of a, a passive approach. 2008 rolls around and good night. I mean, everything fell out. The whole bottom fell out of everything. And now all of a sudden I was realizing that, and I'd already known this, but I got to feel it up close and personal that this American dream was really a nightmare. So all of this debt my wife and I had acquired, all these different things just kind of came to a head. And then I found myself in a position of where for all of 2008 and most of 2009, the only jobs I could find were in third world countries or developing countries. It's probably not a good way to say third world. And so all of a sudden I had this giant epiphany realizing that if I ever got myself back on my feet, if I ever got myself past this bad position we were in, that I would never, ever, ever do the things that got me there in the first place. So in 2008, I was already on board long before then, but 2008 was a demarcation point. 
And then I was like, okay, if I ever find myself in the position where I'm back on my feet, I'm never going to do this again. So that made me go full steam ahead into permaculture. I wasn't working for the most part. So I was like, okay, let me examine this. I find people like Jeff Lawton, Greg Judy, Joel Salatin, and then just immersed myself as deeply as I could into all of their work. And then realized even more that this construct, this matrix that I had essentially prepared for myself had to go. And that's exactly when it started where, like I said, I was already on board, but it was full steam ahead. And so when I found myself back on my feet and all the other people that worked with me, they essentially went right back into the matrix. Now I found myself pretty much isolated because I'm like, I'm not going back in there. I'm going to work from this day forward, finding out the things I love, the things I love to do, which obviously was permaculture at that point. And so from that point on, I did everything I could to learn from as many people as possible, tried to evangelize it to anybody that was working with me. You know, all I wanted to talk about was permaculture. So I'm like, okay, how do I find myself and how do I get myself into a position where I do this full time? And so that's exactly what I did. So demarcation was 2008. And then from that point on, I tried to look for every possible way to find myself out of the electric trade, out of the talk bit, talk radio trade, and into permaculture full time. And so when COVID hit, it was actually the best thing that ever happened to my family because now it's not like I could go out and do my electric job anymore. It's not like I could go out and do some of the other things I was doing. So it basically forced me to do this full time and to evangelize it full time. What I didn't realize is that it could be done. And so COVID forced me to find all the ways possible to make that happen. So essentially, I retired, got out of the electric trade completely, and got myself into this, into education, into the products we sell, into the, and then in the process of it, what I realized is that making a living was just a byproduct of doing the best work I knew how. So sorry for the long-winded answer, but that's essentially how I got to where I, I think I am today. No, it's real, very relevant because basically that's what this podcast is about is how do you get a full-time career or uh, how do you get educated? How do you get a business and practice in permaculture? So it's it's, it's definitely relevant. I'm glad to share your experiences with us. Um, so I... When did you actually hear the first uh, hear the term permaculture? You touched on it a while there. It was your your wife was talk, chatting and trying to get you into it, or yeah, yeah, yeah. For for years ago, now she came from a farming family in upstate New York, and there, there, what I understood farming to be was basically sitting on a tractor, raping the land, and that's what I thought farming was. Well, she was awake to the permaculture thing long before I was. But when I first heard the word permaculture it was in 08 and it was from Jack Spearco at the survival podcast. And he brought up Jeff Lawton and the greening the desert video, if I'm not mistaken. So immediately when I saw that greening the desert video and I saw what was possible in some of the worst places on this planet, I'm like, okay, I'm hooked. How is the whole world not doing this? That's where I was. And I'm like, okay, if he's doing this, how do I learn from him? How do I learn from Mark Shepard? How do I learn from Joel Salatin? How do I learn from Elaine Ingham? How do I learn from all of these people? Mark Shepard, I mean, the list is long. Um, 
Alan Nation, Alan Savory, all these people. So I, I devoured everything I possibly could from these people. But better still, I started making my own mistakes, employing their methods. And so what I've done from that time until now is basically amalgamated all of the best information from all of these people. And I put it into a system, which I don't claim to own. It's just like I cut and paste the very best of everybody. And I put it in the system that works in all the different properties we own and that we've owned. So it's something as a long-term, um, I would say it's a long-term, the way we do it is basically everything we do is a demonstration area. So we find out the things that work and we find out the things that don't. So for example, with our food forests and our orchards, we're taking the work of people like Stefan Subkoviak, Masnubo Fukuoka, Jeff Lawton, Bill Mullison, Mark Shepard, Elaine Ingham, all these different, there's probably 10 different people where we've cut and pasted the very best of all they have to offer. And then we put it into a system that works for us. Will it work for everybody? Maybe not, probably not. But we've taken all these different methods. We've worked with them individually and find out what worked and what worked really well. And good night, man. I think we have a system right now that I haven't been able to really, I don't have a name for it, but I think we have a system right now that works so incredibly well by using all of these giants within this space. And it all stemmed, honestly, completely from Jeff Lawton and that Greening the Desert video. When I saw what was possible there, I'm like, oh my goodness. The way my, my wife's family farmed was no way on earth no way on earth was that going to be an approach that we took. And my wife and my son were completely on board. So what we did with him, so um, now that we were on board and we had this newfound excitement for this unbelievable design science we call permaculture, well, instead of my sending my son off to college, we sent him off to Australia. Instead of sending him off to college, we sent him off to the Earthship Academy. We sent him off to Joel Salatin. We poured all of our knowledge we made him something of our emissary where he would go out to these different places when we couldn't extract this information, bring it back and train us. And so now it's just been, I know that really wasn't your question and I'm sorry. To <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> but yeah. That's how, that's how finding out from permaculture has led to where we are right now. And it's like, I can't get enough. Every time I think I, I feel like I understand something Lo and behold, there's a whole new variety of things that I know I didn't know. And essentially, I'm not going to live long enough to know it all. But good night. What we have found out has created abundance, so much abundance that we have to literally give it away. I don't think it's through there. So I, I was thinking of your system. It's like the, the key kundu of permaculture. Just take take what's effective. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you don't know what you, you open the can of worms right there because it's it's basically Bruce Lee's Tao of Jeet Kune Do, which is essentially the martial arts ver version of permaculture. And what did Bruce Lee say in that book? Absorb what's useful. And that's exactly what we've done or what we try to do. We remove our ego from the system. And then we say, and then we, what's really important is that we pay homage to all of these incredible people. And that's something I think that's missing in a lot of these places where if I get inspiration from Jeff Lawton, I'm going to say, hey, this is where it came from. If I got it from Mark Shepard, hey, this is where it came from. And it goes right back 
man, when you pull up Bruce Lee or Jeet Kune Do, that's essentially what it is, yeah. is that we mixed martial arts because Bruce Lee and Jeet Kune Do was really the precursor to mixed martial arts. So what do you do in mixed martial arts? Because it really overlays brilliantly with permaculture and with our business strategy as well. So if you have in mixed martial arts, you have a wrestling coach, you have a jujitsu coach, you have a boxing coach, you have a grappling coach, you have a coach for every discipline, and then you meld it all together. That's exactly what we try to do in permaculture. And we also do it with the businesses that we've extracted from this system is that we have multiple streams of income. Each individual stream can support the entire farm in and of itself. We have a low consumption lifestyle. We don't drive fancy cars. We don't live in fancy places. We don't do any of that stuff. So with each individual component of our business in, in of itself, it's able to support everything, everything, as long as we don't get foolish and become spenders. So what we have, if one or two or even three means of income falls apart, well, the whole system doesn't fall apart. Same thing in our food forest. We don't just have one cultivar of apple or peach or pear or apricot. So if some bug were to get in there and destroy it, well, it doesn't destroy the whole system. So we apply that same mixed martial arts, Jeet Kune Do, permaculture approach to every aspect of our life, including our business. Once yeah. again, I probably went a little far afield of what you asked, but no, I mean, you're keep going. Worms here. Just keep going. Uh, and, it, and it should be different for everyone, like depending on your size, your capabilities, everything. So that's your, your own personal circumstance. Uh, Absolutely. So the education piece, so you, you educated yourself then through uh, content or did you go to courses? Did you, or you said you, you just try to absorb everything as you could? Good night, man. You are one fantastic interviewer because you're asking all the critical questions for anybody that's getting into this space. Um, I think too little. Now, I, I got to say this. I'm, I'm not usually a person that's going to govern what he says. I usually say it as it comes out. The educational component is multifaceted. The If you only knew the amount of money that we spend, I'll give you a prime example because I usually don't reveal these numbers. Um, the great Stefan Subkoviak of uh, the Permaculture Orchard video, you know, he has a his latest course, I think, to get all of it is like $1,400. OK, that's money well spent for me. Elaine Ingham's course, her soils course. Um, good night for me, my wife and my son to go through that was with the discount was probably $12,000 altogether. You know, to go out and go to the Earthship Academy to send my son there, there's a couple of thousand there. Um, thousands that we spent on online education. Now, this is money that I spent to get the education. Stockman Grass Farmer. Subscription there doesn't cost much, much, but if you want the videos that go along with it, well, you're going to spend thousands of dollars there. So how do I justify this? If I consider myself to be a farmer, a permaculture designer, our biggest expenditure is absolutely positively education. And I'll be honest with you, it's the best money I ever spent. Do Jeff Lawton's online PDC. You're going to spend a couple of thousand for that. Well, if I do the math on how much I actually saved in having this knowledge and not raping my pastures and not raping my land, I'm money ahead. The, the For example, Stefan Subkoviak's latest course 
good night. Like I said, it's four, it's um, $1,400. But when I do the math on it, I'm probably going to make when it's all said and done hundreds of thousands of dollars when it's all said and done for the mistakes I didn't have to make. But this is where I think a lot of people that get into the farming and the permaculture and particularly the homesteading space is they watch a couple of videos and then it ends there. They go out and do this. They don't know where the mistakes came from because they haven't been educated. Now, do you have to spend that kind of money? Absolutely not. I do because the majority, I'm not spending my money on really much else outside of the um, the work we do with rec rescuing kids from child sex trafficking. Yeah, we spend a fair amount of money on that. But then the next big portion, because we produce most of our food, is going into learning from experts in each field, just like we talked about a moment ago. So a mixed martial artist is going to have to pay his coach. He's No matter what that coach is, he or she that's in that space is going to pay each coach. And if you want a really good coach, you're going to have to spend a lot of money. And that's exactly what we do. So yes, there was some really awesome content online, but I'll also be honest too, that there's a lot of people in the homesteading space um, that are giving bad information. And they're more entertainers than they are educators. And that's fine. But there's a lot of people putting out bad information. And I'm trying to overcome that with good information or the best information I have. I'm demonstrating what works for me. Yes, you can learn a lot that way, but why not go straight to the specialist? If you need to get a permaculture design certificate, which is what I suggest anybody in this space to start with, okay, go to the very best, Jeff Lawton. If you can't afford that, School of Permaculture has a really good course online for as little as 25 bucks a month. It is going to ultimately save you thousands, perhaps even tens or maybe even hundreds of thousands, depending on the scale in which you're working, just by that initial investment right off the bat. So for me, another good investment is books. You can read Massanut, you can read One Straw Revolution and avoid making colossal mistakes. You can read even something like Gaia's Garden. Figure out, if nothing else, that book is fantastic because it shows you how guilds should work. You can read Mark Shepard's book, um, Good Night, the name, I should, uh, oh shoot, Restoration Agriculture, that's the name of the book. You can read that book, make tons, avoid making tons of mistakes. Or you can spend some money on the online course where you get all of the above. So education is absolutely critical. But where most homesteaders miss the boat is that they take one course and then they're done. Or they get out there, they're doing this stuff. And I'll be honest with you, my man. Man, this is probably not going to win me any fans, but some of the worst people in this space are actual homesteaders. Some of the worst examples of permaculture are people that have YouTube channels and they call them, and they're homesteaders. They're out there raping the land. They got too many animals. They're doing everything improperly. And all the new people, like Joel Salatin's last book, it's called Homesteading Tsunami. We got record numbers because of inflation, because of job loss, of people getting into this space. And they're seeking their information from people that are popular instead of from people that are actually proactively doing the work. So sorry to spend so much time on this, but I think it's absolutely critical that we reach out to those coaches. And I'm not saying I'm one of them. 
I'm telling you the people I'm getting inspiration from, the people that are absolutely saving me hundreds of thousands of dollars, people that are doing incredible work out there, but don't get the airplay because they're not popular or because they don't have a giant YouTube channel. There are tons of people out there like Greg Judy that you, just from watching his YouTube channel, you can learn pretty much everything you need to know about how to pasture an animal, but you're going to learn a whole lot more by buying his books. There's people out there like Sean and Beth Doherty. Incredible. The things they are doing. Um, One Cow Revolution is their website. Their book is fantastic. But for some reason, so many people that get in this space, they get one person's version of things and then they run away with it and then wonder why they have some of the biggest failures out there. My son works pretty much full-time as a consultant. And this is what he's dealing with nine times out of 10 are people that did the ready fire aim approach to this. And then they wonder how they have so many problems. Um, man, I could go on and on about this, but I guess I'll leave it right there. No, it, um, yeah, it's, it's, I did Jeff Lawton's course, the online one. And within the first year I had earned like three times what the course cost me. So I was able to get that back. And then as you say, the mistakes you make, uh, it's going to save you money in the long term. My problem is I see all these shiny courses. <laughs> I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to do that. And it's like, it, it's hard. And then it's like, that, that's why I run into problems. It's like, uh, there, there's that much. Where do you start? Uh, so I, I've, I've done my PDC now about two or three years ago. Uh, done some designs. And I was like, I need to really educate myself now. And it's like, uh, 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 picking that next, uh, where do you go is, is a problem. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, Cormac, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, I see so many shiny courses out there. And by and large, I honestly can't think of a course where I didn't get something out of it. Um, I've never, I don't consider Jeff Lawton's course, as far as permaculture design, I don't even think there's a close second. Um, it is, it is absolutely fantastic. But a lot of people don't have that kind of money. And if you can do one in person, yeah, there's a benefit from doing that as well. But the beauty about doing Jeff's online course is that you can digest the information as you go along, as opposed to where an in-person course, well, if you didn't catch it the first time, you're in bad luck. There is a lot of great benefit to doing online courses. There's a really good, for example, I have a few online courses myself, one of them being uh, hog butchery. You know, I've trained, that's some of the online stuff that, you know, yeah, it's good to learn it online, but there are fundamental things that you can't necessarily teach until you put your hands on it. Permaculture being one of them, butchery being another one. So where I learned to butcher was from former Michelin star chefs that decided to become butchers. I worked as a volunteer, didn't get paid for it. And I was the hardest working person in that butcher shop because I wanted to learn every single thing I could about that trade. Yeah. So I created an online version that's as good as I can do, but in no way does it replace doing it with your own. I mean, you can do the online stuff all you want, but what I find out is so many people get the online course and then they never put it to work. Until you put your hands on it, that's all. It's theoretical. Until you put your hands on it, until you make the mistakes, and uh, you, you can't discount the value of making mistakes or putting your hands on it. You know, there's a tremendous value in doing the physical work in all of this because it shows you the consequences of your conduct. 
It really does. So until you get out there, it may work for me. It may work for Jeff Lawton. It may work for uh, Cormac. It may work for a number of people out there, but it may not work in your place. But you're never going to know until you put your hands on it. And that's another big thing where there are so many people that have these, um, they have the courses under the belt, but all dreams must be implemented with deeds. So until you, until you put your hands on it, it's always theoretical. And that is critical. Don't be afraid to make those mistakes. Don't be afraid to go out there and land flat on your face, which I've done many, many times. But that is the best teacher. But it also starts at that beginning of putting in the work, learning the information, and then applying it to your own circumstance. Yeah, you mentioned School of Permaculture, because I, I mean watching this chicken video with a guy from uh, South America. And then that, that inspired me to actually get my own chickens and use the deep bedding method. Uh, and that's sort of, so I, I, sort of the theory is, is watching it and actually uh, uh, learning it, reinforces that learning, but you learn a lot more as well. And you get the benefit as a of the of the sort of personality of the chickens, then it becomes real, and it's it's more enjoyable, and then it sort of it brings the elevator down. I I couldn't agree more. It's um, it's it's at that point. For example, Jeff Lawton's chicken tractor on steroids. When I first watched it, I was like, okay, if this is legit, why isn't anybody else doing this? So. I, I found my place at one of the places I have in Texas, one of the properties I was on. And so I was like, okay, it worked for Jeff, but I couldn't seem to make it work. I did everything the way he did, but I couldn't make it work in Texas. So I, I tried foolishly three different chicken tractors on steroids at the same time. I kept watching his video over and over and over, but I couldn't get the results. And so I had to keep fiddling with it. Because, well, one thing I didn't have was the benefit of having uh, clean cow manure. Yeah, I could get cow manure where I was in Texas, but everybody is shooting them up with every kind of antibiotic, every kind of drug you can imagine. Well, all those drugs are basically going to destroy the entire soil food web that I'm trying to build in the compost. So I'm like, how do I do what Jeff is doing without cow manure? So I had to basically take Jeff's version of it and then deconstruct it. And then realizing that, you know, I wouldn't have learned any of this had I not put my hands on it. Good night, Cormac. This was a frustrating bout over three months for me to figure this out. A hundred birds, three different chicken tractors trying to figure out how do I make this work? I know it can work, but how? So over and over and over and over again, I'm failing, failing, failing until I realized, okay, instead of putting all the components in there at once, what if I were to lay the, layer everything every single day? Because the only manure that I had available to me was from the chickens. So instead of putting all the components in on day one, I realized, what if I did it each day, I add a little bit more carbon and then a little more carbon. And then what I realized after three months of trying to figure this out, good night, I can absolutely make this work doing it. But I would have never had the idea if Jeff hadn't presented it. So Jeff's idea worked in his place. I couldn't make it work in mine until I kept fiddling with this thing, fiddling with this thing, fiddling with this thing. And then, of course, I didn't even have a YouTube channel back then. So I had it worked out. And I'm like, good night. It's working. It's working fantastic. Now i got 100 birds that I'm not having to feed. Um, I don't have to spend any money to feed them. But I had to tweak 
his recipe. So that's critical. Start with a recipe. Then if that recipe doesn't work, tweak it a little bit, because I'm sure, as you've noticed, even with the deep bedding method in your environment where you're in Ireland, right? Yeah. So I'm sure that when Nicholas went down there in the tropics and did it, there's a whole series of variables that worked for him in the deep bedding method. I'm sure there are things you had to tweak in your area, but you had to start with the recipe. Yeah. You had to start someplace. And that's exactly what I did. So over and over and over again with the chicken tractor on steroids, once I had a recipe that worked for me, I'm like, okay, now let me try something else. Instead of using those birds, let me try strictly egg layers in this system. How many birds do I need? Hmm, found that out. Now let me try and find birds that are strictly broilers. How many do I need? Which is considerably less. Okay, let me try dual use birds, which is what Jeff did. And okay, let me hatch out some other birds. And so I'm able to find out through all of this experimentation, how many birds do I need in this system? Okay, what I found out was if it's strictly layers, you need about 35 birds in that system. If they're dual purpose birds, I can get away with about 27 birds in that system. What if I have strictly meat birds or broilers? I feel realize that I can get anywhere between 21 to 17 birds and achieve all the same results. But I wouldn't have even been able to start it at all had I not started with Jeff's recipe. So as it stands right now, to my knowledge, we probably have, um, we're probably the world's foremost expert in that system simply because we kept at it, kept at it, kept at it, kept at it, got a YouTube channel, did playlist after playlist of all the things that do work and don't work in that system. But it all started from Jeff giving me that seed and giving us the liberty to be able to experiment with that system and find out just how far we could take it. And I'll be honest with you, the full extent of that system the full extent to this day, I do not know how far it can go. And that system alone, think about it. If you had a neighborhood, you could feed everybody in the neighborhood, producing one to three cubic yards of compost every single week when it's off and running. All of the eggs that you would need for that community, all handled for free. All of the scraps in that community being converted into compost. You can extract the meat out of that system as you need it. It is without a doubt, in my opinion, the most sublime chicken raising system on this planet. And it all started from Carl Hammer at Vermont Composting, which inspired Jeff Lawton at Zaytuna, which inspired me at Permapastures, which has inspired so many other people that are now doing their versions of that system. But it all started right there. Sorry again, once a once oh, again, right. long-winded <laughs> answer, but it's showing how these things uh, begin uh, at the very beginning and what you could do with them. But it all starts with starting with a recipe. Yeah, my my ends is a, a more of a lazier method. So I I had only three chickens. So what I did was put an excess of wood chips on there. So I kept. Uh, it's illegal for us here to put our kitchen scraps, and straight under the chicken coop. For some bizarre reason, <laughs> it's something to do with bird flu. So, uh, and then the stuff you can't, can't really feed your chicken. So I, I would have a cold compost like a garlic. So I would throw the cold compost in there. Then I have the chicken run, and then I would collect coffee grounds. 
And then what I would do in the chicken run every few weeks or once a month, I would just pile the wood chips up, give the chicken something to do. They would scratch through it and then just pile it up. And then every six months, empty the chicken coop, mix it with a cold compost, mix it with a coffee, layer it all in, it would go hot. And then within 28 days, I had this nice, uh, it was very carbon rich, but it, what I did, I used to use, a, used it as a mulch. And then with the rain here, the rain would just rain, wash all the compost underneath and just leave the wood chips on top. So it was like a lazy, <laughs> lazy way of getting stuff. So it was, uh, it was just basically because of my time, a lack of time. So that worked for me. And I was getting maybe a cubic meter of compost every, every six months. Fantastic. Can't use it all. <laughs> it's like, what am I going to do with all this? Uh, I still have it lying out the back and about piling. I can't, for my, I have only, like my whole property, including the house, is a tenth of an acre. So I can't use it all. So it's like I ended up giving it away or filling people's pots and stuff. Oh, that is fantastic. I mean, wow, the problem is the solution. How about that? Uh, so that, that's what I do. Uh, so then getting, uh, after education, then you get yourself educated. Uh, some people have um, lack access to land. I like your story about what you did. Uh, was it where you, where you were working? You started a perm start, started practicing permaculture at the factory or something. Uh, yeah, that was um, man. I tell you what, that was such a joy. So I was working as an as an electrical inspector at a uh, construction job, but unlike most construction jobs where you get the job done and then you move on to another job, this was like a, it's almost a, um, I would say it's a manufacturing plant, but it started off as a construction job. So I'm working there literally seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day. I'm living on site. They allowed me to live on site. Um, so I had my, you know, what you guys would probably call a caravan, had it out there living on the job site. And so there's very little time. But my farm where my wife and son are were two and a half hours away. So I would get home maybe once a month. Now, keep in mind, Cormac, the whole idea here is that I'm saving every penny to retire from this trade and get out completely. So we got, our, got my wife out first, got my son out second, and then we were saving enough money to get me out completely. But I'm thinking, okay, well, how do I, how do I make this work? So I basically, I'm talking permaculture to anybody that would listen to me. And I was so persuasive. There's 120 guys in that place. And they were all guys for the most part. There wasn't a person on that job that didn't know about permaculture. And I would try to figure out ways in which to help these guys. So the foreman, I go to his house. And I do a consultation for him and fix his problem. The general foreman, I go to his place, do a consultation, get it fixed for him. Every single person on that job, I'm offering free consultations. And I got very little time to do it. And so they're so pleased with the results that it, it just occurred to me. Okay, well, we got all this land out here. It was on 10 acres on this uh, work site, but there was an area around it. And I said, hey, you know, I go to the foreman. Hey, you ever thought about, I mean, we're doing nothing. It's just grass out there. You're hiring people to come in and mow this stuff. Why don't you let me do out here what I did at your place? And so he's like, okay, yeah, I don't mind. And I'm thinking, okay, great. So I start making little mini swales out there, put a cover crop on it. 
Then when fall rolls around, I start putting in trees. And so everybody is getting excited. The trees were growing. You know, these were trees that grow exceedingly well in Texas. And so I caught these guys when they were feeling, you know, they were in a really good mood. And I say, hey, you know what would really make this place swing? Chickens, sheep. Uh-huh. And they were like, okay. So in all of, okay, so I'm working 12 to 14 hours a day. And so every single day I'm gathering all the scrap materials I can. These are some of the earliest videos on my YouTube channel. I'm working an hour a day, two hours a day to the detriment of my, detriment of my sleep. Lunch break, I would go over there, work on it a little bit more, but I'm working on it in secret in this little warehouse they had that very few people ever entered. So after about three weeks, I had a full-blown chicken tractor. Meanwhile, I'm <laughs> since I'm here on the job anyway, I ordered chicks and I'm raising them on the job. Nobody knows about this. I'm in a warehouse. I'm feeding the chicks. I'm raising them up. So finally, lo and behold, I said, hey, you guys are still cool with the chickens, right? They're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. So we actually have a weekend where we're not working. So I stayed there on the job, put the chicken tractor out there, put the chicks in there, put the poultry net around it. When they show up on Monday, they don't even know what they're looking at. I mean, they walk in on this job, everybody's standing around like, where the hell did this come from? And they're watching chickens out here in a poultry net. And they couldn't believe that I actually did it. So then I start rotationally grazing these chickens around there. And it's working. It's become something of a spectacle on this job. Now, it works so well that there was a parole office next door. And they had another five acres out there. And the parole office, I mean, people are leaving their jobs to come over and see what I've done. They're looking at this food force that I've started, and they're looking at the chickens working within it. And everybody is losing their minds. They're like, I can't believe somebody actually did this. So I had an automatic chicken door on there. So even when I wasn't there, or I would enlist, because I had gotten so much excitement for this, that whenever I did find a time to go home, I would find one of the guys on the job to kind of look at it one of the local guys to look after it while I would go home for the weekend. And so everybody was investing themselves into this. It got to the point where these guys were almost fighting over, hey, I'm going to get the first peaches off this tree. I'm going to get the first apples. I'm going to get the first whatever. And then when they see how literally the side of this building was capturing all this rainwater, dumping it into the swales, feeding the trees, and they realized, oh my goodness, this is a laissez-faire approach to farming where I don't even have to be involved. It created so much buzz that all of these guys, and we're talking some rough SOBs on this job, they're going home and they're doing their versions of it because they saw a demonstration site with their own two eyes. And to this day, this thing is still flourishing. I mean, they've taken part of it up because it, you know, because it is construction. But to this day, the trees I planted out there are still off and running. Now, the chickens had to go when I left, but it was amazing what happened. I mean, the people out there, it was like customers would show up on this job and they couldn't believe what they were seeing. And it was just at the preliminary stages, but the brush fire that it created in the minds of all these people out there, they were getting their wives to come in for lunch. And they were saying, look, hey, honey, let's do this at our place. And what it created is honestly, it's astonishing.
but it turned out to be something of a comedy spoof, but it also turned out to be one of the best experiments that I've ever conducted in my life. And it all started with talking with everybody I worked with, going to the foreman, doing a uh, consultation at their house, solving their problems with permaculture, taking it all the way up the ladder, solving their problems all along the way, that now when they saw that I had a certain degree of credibility, that they knew uh, what I, that I knew what I was doing, and now all of a sudden it, it built, I mean, even the parole office, they were saying, look, hey, we got five acres over here. Do you want to farm it? Other people that were nearby, hey, I got 30 acres over here. Do you want to run cows? And I'm like, yeah, I'll run cows, chickens, pigs, all of it. And um, so here it was, if had I stayed there in that part of Texas, the real truth of it, Cormac, I would have probably had 50 acres, 50 acres that I was able to farm for free just by taking a little bit of what came off that property, giving it back to the people that provided it. Just by looking after the community, I would have had a full-blown business running cows, pigs, chicken, sheep, eggs, ducks, you name it. Um, fruit trees, you name it, all of it right there on land that I didn't even own. So it's available out there, but you have to let your passion for doing this work exceed your expectations. Just do it for the love of it, and you will be shocked at what falls into your lap. Yeah, I think it's a, a great example of having no land, having no time, <laughs> having loads of energy, and things fall into place. And it's, uh, Something that's reinforced all the time on the podcast as people come on is demonstrating it. And just demonstrate it and then things do happen. And it's like forward motion and that kind of, you no, know, it's, it's just get, getting going, demonstrating your skills and then people are attracted to it. Uh, she mentioned uh, you, you could have stayed there and, and, and had 50 acres as a business. Uh, moving on now to where you are and the business side of things, um, do you have any experience running any particular type of, of businesses that you could share with our audience? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you the ones that yeah. I can't talk about. So we have we sell bone sauce. We didn't invent it. Bone sauce is, the, in my opinion, the world's best deer repellent. It was made known to the world by the great Sepp Holzer. And uh, he called it bone salve in his book. I call it bone sauce. And what we did was take his recipe that cost me a lot of money just to figure out how to do it correctly and in a way that it can be replicated over and over and over again because he recommends using clay pots and doing it a certain way. Well, I invented a different way of doing it that not only makes it way more powerful, but it's in a way that I can replicate it. It's very difficult to make, very, very difficult to make and get it right. But there's a proprietary method in which I've come up. So that's one business. We sell comfrey which is probably one of the most magical herbs on the planet. We sell comfrey. We're probably number one or number two in the United States as far as distributing, as far as selling comfrey. And it's one of those magical things that I think is indispensable on a homestead, no matter which size. Um, we also, we do a little bit of YouTube, but YouTube, they kind of have me in the dark place. I mean, I like to think we provide good content, but we don't really get paid a whole lot from it. We have Patreon. We make a little bit of money there. Um, our classes, our online courses, our butchery course, we make a little bit of money there. Um, we also do in-person 
um, demonstrations, classes. So we make a little bit of money there. Um, and we're always looking for different ways. But what's critical, what's absolutely critical is that we don't lose the fact that we look at money as a byproduct of just doing good work. If it goes the other way around, which, and I've seen that happen with so many Homestead YouTube channels, where there's a lot of them out there that literally don't do their own work. They hire people to do that. Um, they don't even raise their own kids. They have nannies doing that. And then if you're not careful that YouTube becomes, you become a YouTuber and then a pretend farmer. I am very, very careful that YouTube suffers before we do our farming. We don't spend a lot of time in editing. We don't spend a lot of time on YouTube. It is whatever business ventures we're able to produce, it is a byproduct of just what we currently do. That is critical because at the end of the day, I'm a farmer first. I'm a, I'm a farmer first. I'm an educator second. YouTube is probably 10th down on the list. Um, and I'm looking at making money because I don't need a whole lot. We don't need a whole lot, but you got to have something coming in. And we see that as nothing more. And, it, and that system has worked very, very well for us is that we see money as the last course in how we do things. I'm like, I've always thought that if I just provide really good information, solid information, that everything else will follow along. It seems like a stupid business strategy, especially when I'm telling people, look, when you buy Comfrey, you never buy it again. It's easy to reproduce. I want it to be so ubiquitous that I put myself out of business. Bone sauce, I'm the only one in this world that I know of that's selling stuff that actually works. It takes a lot of work. It's a lot of labor. It's a lot of time. So we kind of have that market cornered for now. But if other people get in the space, knock yourself out. Nothing we have is proprietary except for my method of making bone sauce. I spent thousands of dollars trying to figure it out and how to do it properly. So I don't share that information. So that's the only proprietary information we have out here. Outside of that, everything is literally for free. Now on Patreon, I go into very specific details about how I do everything. And YouTube, I put it out there. It's like everything we do, every single thing we do is basically open source. It might be my method of doing it, my family's method of doing it, but all of it's open source. I mean, we just basically find a way that works well for us. And then if there is a way to make money in the process, then, you know, we'll, we'll exploit that. But I will say, and this is critical. Now, I don't know that there's a politically correct way of saying this, but I'm just going to say it the way it is. You know, I find it funny that the people in the homestead space are critical of me making any money at all or you making money at all. But you got no problem giving all your money to the petroleum industry, to the pharmaceutical industry, to Walmart, to Target, to all these people that are doing everything humanly possible to destroy your life and your family, but you raise hell when somebody like me is trying to put a little bit of money in his pocket to put bread on the table. And there's a fair portion of our money that we just give away. We don't talk about those things. Um, but yeah, 
it is funny that we're son, we're in this community. We tend to be that bucket of crabs where we have all this criticism for somebody that tries to make a little bit of money, but you got no criticism for the people out there that are destroying your lives and you will offer your money hand over foot. So yeah, sorry well, about politically incorrect. Well, well uh, we're well aware of it here. I, I have a uh, how do you block people uh, on Instagram and, and, and people get very upset when you mention money in permaculture. It's uh, uh, I had one guy who got very upset about one particular thing. And then uh, he says, oh, that's corporate permaculture and corporates don't go together. And, I, and it's like, oh, by the way, subscribe to my Patreon. And if you want to design, I'll fly it all over the world. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> I said well, well, hold on a minute. You can't, you can't slag. No, it was about ESG, which is a slightly different connotation for using America and Europe. Uh, I think it's been hijacked as well. But it was it, this. This was a genuine ESG course that I had completed, and the guy was offering. Uh, and and the course was very uh, critical of the greenwashing and all that kind of stuff. But it was his reaction, and somebody else says, uh, again, somebody else on Facebook, you're not allowed to earn money using Facebook, and here's my Patreon, or buy me a coffee. And it's like, well, no, if you, for me, if you ask money, then you have to provide value. You have to provide more value than what you're asking. But just to throw stuff out there and say, oh, by the way, pay me something for it. Where's, where's, the, where's the standard? Exactly. You have exactly. to set the standard for yourself and, uh, but skin in the game, really, really sort of, I'm confident in my stuff of what I've produced it. I'm only asking money for it. I'm, uh, so that's the value I'm given. So I, I have no qualms about that. And um, I think it's, it's there's, I'm chatting more people who are in, in the permaculture space who are okay with it. Uh, so I think it's coming around. But to me, I just ignore them. Anybody, it's like, well, you're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> I, I wish I wish you could yeah. completely ignore them. I wish I could. Yeah. For the longest time, this is part of what I'm trying to do. You know, there are people out there that are absolute permaculture designers, but they don't use the word permaculture because it's been hijacked by so many other people. For example, Mark Shepard. He didn't call it pers he called his book Restoration Agriculture, even though it's all about permaculture. Sean and Beth Doherty. Same thing with their book, Greg Judy, all about permaculture, but he doesn't call it that. Danny and Wanda, Deep South Homestead, all about permaculture, but they don't do that. I mean, they don't call it that. I am not going to shy away from the word because so many people have hijacked it and feel as if those of us that make a living out of it, like you said, at the end of the day, the market will decide if the information I provide is worthwhile, then you will participate. But I also got to make a living too. And if it isn't worthwhile, then the market will decide and not buy what it is. I feel like I'm providing the highest quality stuff at a fair price. And like I said, there is a fair amount of what we take in that we just give away. But we don't talk about all that we do to give away for Veterans for Child Rescue or whether it's Caleb House or whether it's, you know, um, for some of the uh, Christian uh, involvement that we that we have. We don't talk about those things because it's part of my Christian ethic to not talk about this stuff. But we do it. And we give away a fair piece of what, what it is we do. How about all the pigs? You know, all of these sanctimonious permaculture types, I'd like to ask them, how many people have you fed? 
Because just last year alone, we gave away three whole pigs, gave them away to the community. Um, we've given away tons of fruit. We produce so much abundance that we can either sell it or give it away. And that's exactly what we do. We give it away. How many butcheries have we done for free and gave away all the meat? We raised all these meat birds and gave it away to all the people that showed up. But nobody ever talks about it. They don't consider that part of the equation. So the people that are most critical, it seems, have deep thought about theoretical permaculture, or I'm a storyteller permaculture, or there's some virtue in being on an all-kale diet. Well, that's fine for those so inclined. But at the end of the day, I got stuff to show for it, and I'm showing everybody else how you can have so much abundance and at the same time heal your land and at the same time engage in people care that is unparalleled in any other system. So if the people are going to be critical with me about that, I'm not just going to get rid of them. I'm not just going to say, oh, you're not invited in this space. I'm probably going to I'm probably going to tell you to beat it and I'm going to make a big deal out of it too on the way out. And I'm going to, instead of shying away from permaculture, I am going to scream it as loudly as I can. And I will work within the framework, the ethics, the prime directive of permaculture, which by the way, so many people have forgotten. They go on about the ethics and they want to change them to fit their thing. But let's not forget the prime directive of permaculture, which essentially is take immediate control of yourself and your family in and everything they do, let me say it a different way. Me, as the patriarch of my family, I am responsible for everything my family does and fails to do. So if it starts and stops right there, then that's a pretty good place to start. But I wonder if some of these sanctimonious types have the same opinion of their lifestyle. And in my experience, being so close to Asheville, North Carolina, that isn't at all the ethic they have. Most of these people could not survive without a grant or without some government assistance, which if you get those, that's fine. But I don't get any of those things. And I still produce so much that I have to give it away. So if those critical people ever want to have a debate, do your best. And I'm going to mop the floor you with, I'm going to mop the floor with you in the landscape of ideas. Because what we have works, and I prove it with this, I'm not trying to sound arrogant. But these people that are so sanctimonious drive me nuts. And I'm going to kick them all in the Jimmy every chance I get. <laughs> Great stuff. Uh, the world, uh, like, read the message. Right? We have to regenerate the place. It's a mess. So we regenerate. And you can't regenerate unless you're feeding yourself. So uh, a pile of uh, broke permaculture people is no good to anybody. <laughs> it's like... Uh, that's no good because everybody where, where, where is your alternative you have to go well, get a job somewhere else and it's like well, let uh, me let me ask you this you cannot do you know of anybody that is able to give unless you are at a point of abundance yourself you have if your basic needs aren't being met well you can't it's difficult to see to the basic needs of other people so if i'm able to produce this and have this incredible abundance whether it's fruit veggies, animal products, fat, you name it. I can't be abundant 
until I'm first but I can't be giving until I'm first abundant. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like in an airplane crash, you put your own oxygen mask on first before you help anybody else. Uh, that's that's what I would say. Uh, but I, I like the way in permaculture too. You do have vegan permaculture. You go you go practice your vegan permaculture and share it with us. And if I want to take that up, I'll take that up. Or I, I think it's all the different uh, different shades as well, which is good. <laughs> yeah, but I'd never hear. I never hear any meat producing permaculture designers criticize the vegan people or try to ruin their businesses or destroy their destroy them completely. I only have ever seen it. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm just isolated. I've only ever seen the vegan permaculture people that tend to be the more sanctimonious ones and try to put the rest of us out of business. If that's what you're into, Hit me with your best shot. That's why I don't tell everybody about everything I do because those people have already come after me before. And yeah, you can take out everything else, but you're not going to get the most critical things that yeah. I do to put bread on the table because these people are so, they're polluted with the sickness of whatever it is. Maybe if they had a little more animal fat in their diets, I mean, maybe they wouldn't be so crazy. I don't know. But at the end of the day, Hit me with your best shot. That's exactly why I don't tell you every way yeah, that's, that's, that I make a career. Yeah, it's, it's understandable. Uh, especially when it impacts your place and your your income, your family's income. But uh, there was a, a a spoof guy on the internet and he, he put on a Just Stop Oil t-shirt uh, and he, he pretended to go on and he was sort of pirating them. So this guy's just come off a Just Stop Oil protest. He's sitting in the middle of the road. And this is in, in London. And the guy's sitting eating a banana. <laughs> Thinking, how do you think your banana got in your hand? <laughs> it's just stop while he's eating his banana. It's like, uh, that, like the the disconnect with them. It's just like that's crazy. And uh, I I I always find I was I always laugh every time I think about it. It's uh uh one last thing I meant to ask you about, which I was surprised. I don't want to set you off on another rant, but uh, you were chatting to Nicholas about being a Christian and uh. In permaculture, and people have actually had a bad reaction. That I don't, I, I never. That was the first I'd ever heard of it. I thought that's bizarre. Yeah, is... uh, yeah. So I make no bones about it that I'm a Christian, American, heterosexual, pro-gun, liberty-minded permaculture designer. And um, if you like it, fine. If you don't, that's fine too. But I'm all about no matter from where you come from. I truly believe that you should, unless you're harming anybody else, I live by the non-aggression principle. Don't start no SH and there won't be no IT. So if you want to live a certain way, that's fine, as long as you're not hurting anybody else. But there are those within this space in permaculture, and Nicholas has experienced it, I think also quite a bit, where the second I bring up my Christian faith and my ethic, then all of a sudden the claws come out. And that's happened more than once. And like I said, Nicholas has probably experienced this much to a much greater degree than I ever did. But yeah, there are those people that pop up. And um, where I live, about 30 to 45 minutes away from Asheville, North Carolina, I am a great minority. There aren't too many outside of myself and maybe one or two others. I don't know of any other Christian permaculture designers. And those that aren't, tend to be some of the most vitriolic types. 
And if that's what you want to do, that's fine. I don't have to associate with you and you don't have to associate with me, but I will make no bones about the fact. And I will champion the fact that I truly believe that everything I see around me, all seven layers of a forest, the insects, the animals, the bugs, all of these things work in concert by someone, by a being that designed all of it. And through the hand of Jesus, my Lord and Savior, and I'll make no bones, I will not shy away from it. And if people don't like it, that's fine. There's plenty of other people that don't subscribe to my version of permaculture. But those that do, maybe you might find a little bit of overlap with, you know, what you feel about it. But yeah, there are those people out there that will absolutely positively not hear another word I say because I say Jesus is my Lord and Savior. So yeah, I, yeah, I just I, I just find it bizarre, particularly because it's heirs care, people care. So it's about people care, and you can't just dismiss someone because you disagree with them. Like it's everybody. Uh, uh, I was just bizarre, and I was really I just wanted to share that. I just for me, it was like why it just didn't make any sense for someone here in Ireland to hear that. I was just like that. Uh, I just found it completely bizarre. Uh, I really do like your ethics, so the way uh, as well, just to finish on, earth care, people share, return a surplus to the other two at your choosing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, that's where I differ with a lot of the vegan-type permacultures. Um, when you call it fair share, it's so ambiguous, and some of these people that think that the state should be the one to determine that. Well, there's only four ways to spend money or assets. It's the four quadrants, and it was made popular by the great Milton Friedman, where you spend other people's money on other people, where neither cost nor quality matter, or you're spending other people's money on yourself. The cost doesn't matter, but the quality sure does. And then they're spending your money on other people. Or in which case, if I'm spending my money on other people, both cost and quality matter. And then they're spending... My Well, the other, it, it doesn't matter. I know we're going long in the tooth, but the point of it being is that the best quadrant, the most efficient quadrant of spending resources and money is always going to be spending my money or my interests on me or what's important to me, where cost and quality both matter. So when we get into fair share where anybody can just go out there and help themselves, well, there's somebody, you know, there's somebody else making all those determinations. That's why I'm saying if I'm the one on my property that makes those determinations, I will find the most efficient ways of doing it. And uh, that's where I'm going to differ from a lot of the people out there that talk about fair share. And because it's so ambiguous that nobody really even knows what that means. And every time I try to get somebody to pin it down, I can't get a good answer on it. So it's always going to be, you know, distributing to the first two on the basis of how I feel they need to be distributed. So that's, I think that's the most efficient way of doing this. Yep. hundred percent. Uh, any final thoughts or any advice for, uh, aspiring permaculture professionals? Oh yeah. Um, good night. So many people <laughs> are, so many people are uh, getting into this space and they make a colossal mistake. Like I did early on, feeling like I had to involve other people into it. And that was one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made because there's so there's record numbers of getting into this space. 
be absolutely sure that the people you involve yourself with are absolutely positively committed, write everything down. And uh, I've made that mistake over and over again. So don't make that mistake. Don't make the mistake also, I think, of um, being afraid. One of the best things that ever happened to me was meeting and having Joel Salatin as my friend. You know, I was one of those people that was afraid to make mistakes based on how I was raised. He said one thing, and I swear I was the only one in the crowd that heard it when he said it. Um, you were often taught that if, if it's worth doing, then you do it right. Well, Joel reconditioned my mind to believe that it's worth doing, then it's worth doing poorly at first. So don't be one of those people that waits on the fest, waiting all for every single thing to fall in line, and then it has to be perfect. Go out there, make mistakes. Try not to make too many big colossal mistakes, but make mistakes. That is the best way to learn. And so get off the fence. Don't be fearful. Make those mistakes. Make big mistakes, but fail while daring greatly. That's what I'm going to say to everybody out there. Make those mistakes. Be careful of your associations. Be careful of the people that get involved. And um, they're more polished than spit and more glitter than grit. So be, be really, really careful about the people you get involved with. And don't be afraid. Go after Moby Dick in a rowboat and take the tartar sauce with you. That's how we all ought to go out, go about this permaculture journey. Make those mistakes. Be careful of your associations. And uh, just have fun along the way. I hope that's a benefit to a lot of people out there. Great advice. I'm not going to say anything more. Bully, thanks very much. And uh, guys, that was a Permaculture Vine podcast. See you next week. Mm -hmm.